Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. I love turning the calendar every year, not just when you leave a year like 2020. You know, whew, glad to get out of that one. But really every year, because it gives you time to reflect and get a, a kind of big picture perspective on your life and where you're at. Because uh, you've, by God's grace, made it through another year of life. And so kind of assessing uh, where have I been, what's been good, what do I want to change, and then where am I going, and how do I align my life to accomplish the purpose and plans that God has for me, to carry out the mission that Jesus has for me. And so I hope and pray, uh, if you haven't done that already, that you take some time in the first couple of weeks of the year, do a little self-assessment, maybe even sit down as a family, or the husband and wife, or whoever your family would be, and, and do a little assessment. You know, what can we thank God for? Where has He been gracious and strong over this last year? And how can we praise Him? And then, where does He want us to go in 2021? How, to, how can we more and more align our lives with His mission uh, for us as individuals and for us as a family, and then even have those conversations as a church? What, what are the tangible steps that He wants us to take to help carry out His mission, His calling for you as Alds Chapel Bible Church? In 2021, uh, you know, our, our purpose and our identity as the Church of Jesus Christ isn't just to have services. There's actual mission He's called us to go and join Him in. Part of that's accomplished when we gather on the Lord's Day to worship Him, but there's more than just what we do on the Lord's Day. And so I pray and hope that time will be good for you uh, as you think back and as you plan for the future. All, all within the sovereign providence of God. And as, as the men of the crossing who come and proclaim the word to you on Sundays, uh, we hope that jumping back into our series in Mark will help. Some of you may remember that we had plans to walk through Mark in 2020. We actually started it the first couple Sundays of March. Uh, James and jo- uh, Joseph walked through verse 8, and then, of course, everybody knows what happened next. So today we pick that series back up. We'll start off with a little pop quiz, see what you remember. Just kidding. <laughs> Not going to do that. But uh, If you have it recorded, you can go back and listen. But we'll, we'll focus in on verse 9 through 11 today. But let's begin in the, in the very first verse of, of the Gospel of Mark. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, One who is more powerful than I I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that as another calendar is flipped in in our lives, you are continue to be faithful and sustaining to us. You continue to 
uh, preserve us and, and help us persevere through whatever life brings. Thank you for your faithfulness all the time. You have given us your word. You have translated it so we can understand it. And it still feeds us because it is the words of Christ. It still brings life and hope and conviction and courage because they are the living words of Christ. And so we pray you would accomplish that today in our, our hearts and our lives. Lord, we need, we need more of Jesus. We need more of his power, more of his hope and joy and love and peace as we face another year of life. And so we pray you would provide that by your grace, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The overview that James and Joseph gave, uh, walk through those first eight verses of Mark back in March. Uh, verses 9 through 11 is where we'll focus today. But as a review, the Gospel of Mark was the first gospel that was written and passed along in the early church. The shortest gospel, the gospel that is fast-paced, the gospel of action. Mark is known for that word immediately that occurs often throughout the gospel. And immediately this happened, immediately that happened. Mark is told from the perspective of Peter, you may remember, which makes sense that it's fast-paced in action because that was kind of Peter's personality. Mark was written to believers in Rome who were facing persecution, as many believers were in the first century, encouraging them that this man that they had given their life to follow, this man named Jesus, he really is who he said he is. He really did what he said he did. So it's, it's worth giving up your life, potentially, to, to follow Jesus, to proclaim him to others. Uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and, and here Mark is bold and emphatic as he begins by declaring over and over through a variety of ways the centrality of Jesus to this gospel. From the opening words, the beginning, which would draw readers back to Genesis 1, just as God did amazing things in creation, so now here comes this new creation called the gospel, the good news, and it's not just some good news among other good news, it is the good news. It is the best news. It's about Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, who is a continuation of God's work in the Old Testament. And as the Jews in the first century were waiting for the Lord to come, preceded by Elijah, so now here comes this man, John the Baptist, dressed like Elijah, with a ministry like Elijah, calling Jews, God's people, to come to the wilderness to repent and be baptized and recommit their lives to God. And John was saying, as great as this is what I'm doing, what you're doing, there is one coming who is even greater. And today in verse 9 through 11, Jesus enters the picture. And we see his ministry initiated. A ministry that we'll focus on today was revealed in identity and power. Identity and power. Now this event, the baptism of Jesus, was incredibly significant in the life and ministry of Jesus. Yet in true Markin style, he only uses 53 words in the original language of the New Testament to describe this baptism. This is an event so important that when the early church was gathered in Acts chapter 1, and they were thinking and praying about who should replace Judas Iscariot as the 12th disciple, one of the criteria that this guy had to meet was someone who had been with them from the beginning, from the baptism of John. Acts chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, ascension, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So if you weren't with them from the beginning when Jesus was baptized by John, you couldn't be considered to be that guy to replace Judas. 
Later in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is being confronted by religious leaders about his authority to cleanse the temple of money changers and other people taking advantage of the worshipers to turn a profit, they ask him, who gives you the authority to do this? Show us your credentials. Show us your badge. Show us your papers. And he goes back, Jesus goes back to this scene in Mark chapter 1, verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And if a word had circulated about the baptism of John, they would know. Uh, the heavens spoke, right? The Spirit of God descended like a dove. This obviously was a baptism from heaven. This was the true beginning of the work and ministry of Jesus. And since Mark is all about action, Mark doesn't begin with the genealogies of Matthew and Luke. He doesn't begin with creation and the Logos like the Gospel of John. Mark jumps right into the action, baptism, Jesus, John. This baptism of John was very unique. Jews had practiced a sort of self-baptism that would be something an individual would decide to do on their own, a sign of recommitment or adhering to this Jewish way of life. But there had been nothing in the Jewish practice of someone uh, being baptized by someone else or someone calling Jews to come out and repent of your sins and be baptized. They were Jews. They were God's chosen people. They had it all. They had the, the heritage. They had the, the, the bloodlines. They had everything they needed to be and enjoy being God's people. Who would, who would call the Jews to repent and be baptized? And yet here was John sent by God to do that very thing. In other words, just because you're a Jew by birthright doesn't make you someone who doesn't need a Savior. You Jewish people need to repent of your sins and need to turn from your sins and, and find a Savior. So he's, he's kind of priming the pump for the gospel message that Jesus would bring. And John would say, I'm not him, I'm not the Savior, but he's coming and he's not going to baptize you with water, but with the Holy Spirit. He's going to give you new life, make you a new creation, give you the Spirit of God. So the first question then for us to look at is, why was Jesus baptized? If John was offering your baptism for repentance, for sinful people to repent, then why is Jesus receiving this if he wasn't sinful and didn't need to repent? And then why would Jesus need this baptism? Well, Mark doesn't tell us. He simply records that it happened. Matthew attempts to give an explanation for why your supposedly sinless leader of your new religion would need a baptism of repentance. It's almost like Matthew's trying to explain what could have been an embarrassing little detail at the start of Jesus' ministry. Wait, I thought you said Jesus was sinless, and why was he being baptized like all these other sinners? Well, uh, Matthew says in Matthew 3, 14 and 15, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. But what does that mean? To fulfill all righteousness. Well, in the Old Testament, the nation of God, chosen by God, the nation of Israel, chosen by God to be his own people, begins with God calling Abram in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great blessing, a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, the Abrahamic blessing. And this continued through Abraham to his son Isaac and then to Jacob, whose family grew up, to the twelve sons by the end of the, the book of Genesis. And, and by the end of Genesis, those twelve sons had moved to Egypt because of the famine. 
And in Egypt, the, the God would providentially supply food and grow this, these 12 sons and 70 people, these families to be hundreds of thousands of people, so big that the Egyptians would eventually fear this nation, that these, these, they would enslave them because they could rise up and revolt and overtake us. So they enslave them, and the people cry out for salvation. Y'all know this story through the beginning uh, chapters of the Bible, books of the Bible. They cry out for salvation. God sends a deliverer, Moses, who leads them out of Egypt with signs and wonders and demonstrations of power. God leads them uh, through a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night into the wilderness to give them a land, to give them that inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. And it was in the wilderness that these people became his people, his nation. Is in the wilderness where God revealed his law. And so when John is in the wilderness and Jesus goes out to the wilderness, that term wilderness meant something to the Jewish people. It's in the wilderness where God revealed his law so they could know him and love him. In the wilderness, he provided manna. In the wilderness, God met with them. And you see language like Deuteronomy 7, 6, and 8. For you are a people holy to your, the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people the Lord has set his love on and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In fact, if you go back a little bit further in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If he refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So God calls his son into the wilderness to make them a nation and bless them, and they love him, serve him, obey him, and live happily ever after. That's how the rest of the Old Testament goes, right? Not quite. They don't. They are God's son. He does call them into the wilderness for this special covenantal relationship, but they don't love him, serve him, obey him, follow him all the time. They rebel and reject God as their king. They demand their own king, and God gives them a king. He begins to work through the kings of the nation so, that, so much so that the kings kind of take on this representative role so that as the king went, so went the nation. If you had a king like David who loved the Lord and obeyed the Lord, the nation went well. But if you had a king that was evil and wicked, the nation was evil and wicked. But they're still God's people. God's holy nation, a good father who loves his children, disciplines his children. And so God the Father did that with his son, the children of Israel. You see language like that in the, like the prophet Hosea, Hosea 2, Therefore behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So there, there's discipline of the father for the, the son, the children of the nation of Israel. There's calling them again to the wilderness. This language continued through the prophets. That in the wilderness I will, I will speak to her tenderly and she will again love me. And so all of this is in the mind of the first century Jew as they're, as they're reading about and they're hearing this story about this man Jesus, their Messiah, going into the wilderness to be baptized. And the Old Testament ends and God is silent for 400 years until this guy dressed like Elijah comes in the wilderness to proclaim this new thing, a baptism of repentance. Wait, we're Jews already. We've been circumcised. Why are we being baptized? 
Oh, there's this prophet like Elijah calling us to turn from our sins, to receive this baptism and recommit to being the people of God. And so they're flocking from the religious and cultural center of the nation, Jerusalem and Judea, and they're doing, where they're doing the religious thing, repenting of sin, being baptized, returning to the Lord like they did so many times in the Old Testament. They're experiencing through the baptism of John something they had experienced over and over again in their days past. This going to the wilderness to reconnect and, and repent of their sins and, and reaffirm their commitment to be God's people. But like it was in the Old Testament for so many, it was only outward. This was not, the baptism of John was not salvation. They needed something to change on the inside. Some of those who received this baptism from John would follow Jesus. Most would not. But one day, from Nazareth, a town so insignificant it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament or any other Jewish writings, it's very far from Jerusalem, from the area of Galilee, which had too many Gentiles to be a pure or clean area. Here comes this man alone to receive a baptism he does not need because unknown to most, he had never sinned. Unknown to most, he is the true Israel, God's true son, God's only son, the beloved son, the son whom he loved. Now his cousin, John the baptizer, he knows who he is. John, John records this in John chapter 1. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who come, takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. You see, Jesus didn't come to receive John's baptism because he was a sinner who needed to repent. He came because he was identifying with sinners who needed to repent. His ministry would be a ministry of standing in the place of sinners who need to repent. And in fact, he himself would absorb the wrath of God for those sins. He would take what we deserve to receive. Through his perfect righteous life, he was standing in the place of the unrighteous and purchasing for them a righteousness that could be applied to their account. This is what's called imputed righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one who in verse 8 would baptize with the Spirit and create a new people for himself would first humbly submit to John's baptism to identify with the people he came to save and to demonstrate true, perfect repentance because repentance is turning from sin to faith and trust in God. Jesus perfectly repented. He always turned from sin and trusted in God to help him overcome temptation. He did it all the time. Jesus humbly received a baptism he did not need to identify with me and you. Sinners who need a cleansing we cannot provide. For sins that we committed that he paid for willingly and lovingly. That's why Jesus was baptized, to identify with us, standing in our place offering a true repentance, thus fulfilling all righteousness. From the very beginning of his ministry, our hearts and minds are already being drawn to the cross. The very first thing he does, we're already thinking about what he has to accomplish, what he has to do in order to fulfill his purpose and his mission. We know what's coming. Jesus knows what's coming. And from the very first act of his ministry, his mind and heart are pointed to Calvary, 
where he would willingly, lovingly lay down his life as a ransom for many. And it begins here at baptism. So what is the relationship between his baptism and our baptism? Are we baptized because we want to be like Jesus? Interestingly, no, we are not baptized because Jesus was baptized. He was doing something that we can't do. He's identifying with a sinful people. He's beginning his ministry as a substitution and sacrifice for sinners. His baptism was so incredibly unique, the heavens ripped open, a voice spoke, and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. I've never seen that happen in anybody's baptism. Have you? This is a, a, a once-in-a-time uh, once event. Um, so then why do we get baptized? Well, even though Jesus' baptism was unique, the baptism of repentance by John continued. In fact, it tells us in John chapter 4, Jesus participated in them. Now, when Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So there's a little blurb that the, the gospel writer John gives us, that this baptism ministry continued. Jesus and his disciples were baptized, even though Jesus didn't baptize, his disciples did. We, this, this continued. We don't have any more details to the rest of the gospels, but we know that continued for a while. Then we see Jesus die and rise, and before he ascended, he gives his mission to his disciples. And what was part of their mission? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Fast forward a few days to the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls on the 120 disciples of Jesus. They leave the upper room. They begin to proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem, mainly Peter. And at the end of Peter's sermon, the people who are convicted say, What do we do, Peter? And what does he tell them? And when they heard, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism, in fact, became universal in the early church. So much so that if you look through the book of Acts, you look through the gospel accounts, you don't find one single instance of an unbaptized follower of Jesus, except for the thief on the cross. Now, some take that too far, and they say, well, baptism then is essential for salvation. In other words, uh, our Church of Christ friends, they will go so far as to say that it's at bapti- baptism is when salvation happens. That, that's too far. That's reading too much into the New Testament. But then the, the, you don't take that and swing the pendulum so far to say, well, baptism is just optional. Take it or leave it. You don't have to do it doesn't mean you're not saved. When, when in reality, what you see in the, the, the testimony of the Scriptures is an unbaptized follower of Jesus Christ should be a very rare thing. A very rare thing. Like there, There's not, a, a, you know, the, some of the obstacles or objections that people give about why they're not baptized, why they've never publicly professed their faith through baptism to the, the church of Jesus Christ. You know, I'm afraid of water. I don't like the to appear in public, or I'm nervous. I mean, all those things can be overcome when you understand why we get baptized. In uh, uh, 2012, I went through some missionary training through some uh, missionaries who did work in in the East, so Asia primarily. And they talked about uh, over there, when someone professes faith in Christ, they've shared the gospel, shared the gospel, they profess faith in Christ. When they think about baptism, they say they look at their watch. And, And what they were saying is, baptism happens immediately over there. Because they know that to turn away from the false gods of their family, to turn away from the false gods of their culture, and to embrace Jesus, they know the cost. 
They know that this is going to possibly cost them their relationship with their family, maybe their jobs, maybe even their life. They're standing in their culture, their potential to marry somebody. And so publicly identifying with Jesus, they understand it comes inherent with the cost. And so they share the gospel, they profess faith in Christ. Okay, when are we getting baptized? It happens immediately. Because they understand what it means to publicly identify with Jesus. We, we don't have that same cost in the American church. We don't carry that same. So we, like at the crossing, we try to do things to try and, and add some meaningfulness to baptism. You know, we, we have people, uh, if you're going to be baptized, you're going to share your story how, of how you came to know Jesus. You can, you can write it out. You can read it. If it's a child, they can have their parents help them. So we, we, we don't make it impossible like you have to be good at public speaking. But there should be some public declaration that I understand what the gospel is, and I can declare it to you, and this has happened to me. And so there's, there's a cost that becomes a part of that. But essentially, what we're proclaiming through baptism is what's declared in Romans 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, we were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might, too, walk in the newness of life. And you've heard that language, probably, when you've seen someone baptized. If you have become a Christian and you want to tell everyone about it, the answer is, be baptized. That's how we make it known to the world. Yeah, you can video it, you can put it on social media, all that's well and good, but that's how we did it before there was social media. You want to make it known to the, the people of God, you, you get baptized. And so I would encourage you, if you're professing faith in Jesus Christ and you've never gone through believer's baptism, please consider that. Like your objections to that uh, are, are probably not biblical. Like you're, you're holding on to some insecurity or some fear or maybe some bad theology from your past. So we had a guy uh, who was a part of the crossing for a while when they lived in our area and they've moved back to Houston and he grew up Church of Christ, and he really struggled because he had never been baptized as a believer. He'd come to faith in Christ after he and his wife uh, were, were engaged, and they were dating before they got married, and, and he really wanted to be baptized. But he had so much baggage from Church of Christ years that it, it, he wanted to make sure he was getting baptized for the right reasons. And it took him probably three or four years to work through that in his walk with Jesus. But he last year emailed me and told me the whole story of how he finally was baptized and declared to his church where they live outside of Houston that Jesus was truly his Lord and his Savior. And so it may be that process for you. Like you need to work through some baggage and stuff. That's fine. Work through all that. Let the leaders of your church help you work through all that. I'm willing to help as well. But, but certainly you need to make that a part of your testimony, your walk with Jesus. Let's go back to Jesus' baptism. It's not just what Jesus did. It's also what happened to Jesus and what was said about Jesus. Verse 10 and 11. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son with whom you I am well pleased. The sky torn open. Very descriptive, powerful imagery spoken of in Isaiah 64.1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This word for the, the sky being torn open is used only one other time in the Gospel of Mark when the temple curtain was torn in two after Jesus died, signifying God's people no longer had to go through a human intermediary to enter in and live in God's presence. 
God's Son had come and paid the final price once and for all that would make us His people. In both instances where this word torn, ripped is used, there is a declaration of Jesus as God's Son. Here, by heaven. In Mark chapter 15, by the Roman centurion at the cross. Truly, this man was the Son of God. And Jesus comes up out of the water. So, baptism by immersion. We won't spend a lot of time on that, but just point that out. Comes up out of the water and the heavens rip open. The Spirit descends like a dove, not an actual dove, but like a dove, kind of flittering down onto a, a, a pool of water. And a voice speaks from heaven. Not your normal baptism. Literally, in the, in the, the original language of the New Testament, it says the Spirit descended into him. Not just power on him or around him, but the Spirit descended into him, very much carrying along the idea from the Old Testament of the Holy Spirit anointing and empowering someone for the work of God. It's not that Jesus didn't have the power of the Spirit of God before this moment. He did because he resisted sin and temptation for 30 years. But this was a special, significant anointing for him to begin this messianic work that he had come to accomplish. This very specific three-year ministry of proclaiming the kingdom of God is here. And it required the power of God to, to accomplish that. This, is, this heaven ripping open, the Spirit descending like this, fulfilled Old Testament expectations the Jews had um, about when the Lord comes and establishes His kingdom. It was assumed by the Jews that God no longer spoke directly to His people. He had been silent for 400 years. Now, here comes this one from Nazareth of Galilee, the greater one, the stronger one according to John, literally heaven is now ripping open, reaching down and empowering this one person to reveal God and speak from God to His people like never before. Like God has spoken to His people and revealed stuff about Himself before, but now He's about to speak as, as clearly and as loudly as He's ever spoken in a way that would transform not just that culture then, but transform our entire world as the gospel continues to go forth and change lives. Hebrews 1 talks about this. Long ago and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things through whom He created the world. He is the radiance and the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And so here is the, literally the heavens ripping open and God coming to speak as in ways that He's never spoken to His people before. So much so Jesus would say to Philip, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. And if that wasn't enough, heaven speaks. God speaks audibly. Like, just use your sanctified imagination and consider what that was like. I mean, I've never had an audible voice of God speak to me. I've never been outside and heard the heavens proclaim something audibly. But you can just imagine how loud was it? What did it sound like? Was it Charlton Heston? Was it some other voice? I mean, what did the voice of God sound like when it spoke to these people who were gathered? Only one other time this happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, in both instances, there's a reference to His Sonship. This is my Son. Or here, this is my beloved Son. This is one of the few places in Scripture where you clearly see the Trinity. Right? A, a doctrine that's so essential to our faith. A doctrine that's not explicitly spelled out. Like you can't go anywhere in the Scripture and it says... Here's the doctrine of the Trinity, point one, two, and three. It's more of a doctrine we understand from the totality of Scripture, that we know for a fact there's one God, 
And we know for a fact that God exists in three persons. Because every time you see the Father, He has attributes that only God can have. And every time you see the Son, He has attributes that only God can have. And every time you see the Spirit, He has attributes that only God can have. So we have one God existing in three persons. And here's one of the few instances where all three are on the scene together. And then you have this divine declaration. This is my beloved Son. A unique declaration of identity with whom God the Father shared with no one else. God never said to any other man, you are my son. Abraham was his friend. Moses was a servant. Aaron was a chosen one of God. David was a man after God's heart. Paul was an apostle, but no man was said to be the son of God like this. And then, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Wait a second. Why is the father pleased with the son? This is the beginning of his ministry. He hasn't accomplished everything. He hasn't done all of his work. He hasn't taught, hasn't healed, cast out the first demon, calmed the first storm, changed any water to wine, confronted zero hypocrites, much less gone to the cross and died and rose from the dead. How can God already be pleased with his son? Well, in one sense, all the works of Jesus were as good as done. The Bible speaks of Jesus being crucified before the foundation of the world. Because this is God's work, it's going to be accomplished. It's going to be done. No one can stop it. It's going to happen. So in, in one sense, it's as good as done. But in another sense, there's this inside look at the relationship between the Father and the Son, this love that existed that's not rooted in performance, but in this natural, essential identity. Simply because He is the Son, He loves Him and He is well pleased with Him. We get an understanding of this with our kids. Like, our kids don't have to jump through hoops for us to love our kids. We love them unconditionally. Now, we can be pleased with them at some times and less pleased with them at other times based on what they do, but our love is constant. At least it's what we strive for it to be. It's what we want it to be. You know, like a Saturday morning, I wake up and cook breakfast for, for the kids, and they're, what have they done? They've just been sleeping all night. I hope. I hope they've been sleeping. Uh, except the bad nights, they don't sleep. But most of the time, they've been sleeping all night. They wake up, and I give them this warm, salty bacon and warm pancakes and sweet syrup and cold milk because they are my children. I love to provide for them. And we get that, but in a much greater way, God the Father feels that way about God the Son all the time. And this is affirmed not because of anything the Son has done, but simply because you are my Son. That alone means I am pleased with you. And now you're receiving the power you need to go and do the ministry you're being sent to do, to act as God, because you are God in the flesh, to do the things only God can do. This was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Who Jesus is and the demonstration of his power, his identity and his power, will be one of the key themes to follow throughout the book of Mark. And they are key themes to who we are as Christians and as the church. So think about your identity as a child of your Father in heaven. That identity is possible because of Jesus Christ. And it is more essential to who you are than almost all the other ways in which we identify ourselves. 
Because this identity that we have in Jesus is one of the few things that we will carry on into eternity. Most of the other ways that we identify ourselves are going to fall away as we head into eternity. We, we won't be married in heaven. So we, I think we'll know who our spouses are, but I won't be Jennifer's husband. We won't live together as man and wife in heaven. She won't be my wife. We'll be brother and sisters in Christ, right? Our marriage is a huge identifier about who we are today that will one day no longer exist. Our identity in Christ is more fundamental to who we are than even who we're married to. Same thing with, with our parents, being a parent of a child or being a, a, a son or daughter of a, a mom or dad. Again, we're, our identity in heaven is more brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all the family of God. We won't live in that parental child relationship when we're in the eternal, the eternal state. We'll be all the same brothers and sisters in Christ. Our jobs, obviously, thank goodness, we're not taking that into heaven. That's long gone before we even through with this life, right? Uh, citizens of the United States of America. There won't be a United States of America in heaven. So that's a huge part of our identity now that won't be in the eternal state. Uh, fans of LSU, there won't be LSU football in heaven, right? It's not heavenly this year either. Um, uh, think about your hobbies. I mean, all where you live, all the ways our educational levels, our income levels, all these ways that we... Uh, label ourselves and we allow ourselves to be identified, Jesus and our identity in Jesus is more fundamental than all of that because it lasts forever and nothing and no one can take it away. We can lose a lot of those other labels, right? If we get divorced or if our spouse dies, we're no longer married to that person. And same thing with our children. Something happens to them or something happens to us. So we can lose a lot of those things that come and go, but we can't lose our identity in Christ because no one can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No one can rip us out of our Father's hand. So are you resting in that? Are you enjoying that? Because what happens is when we're resting and enjoying and building the foundation of our life on that identity in Christ, let the rest of it be shaken. Let the rest of it crumble down. And it doesn't change who I am in Christ Jesus. It doesn't change who Christ Jesus is in me. And it doesn't change who the church is. It doesn't change who we are. Like our relationship as brother and sister in Christ is rooted in Jesus. No one can take Jesus away from me. So guess what, brother and sister in Christ? You're always my brother and sister in Christ. No one can destroy that or take that away. Our mission as the church always remains to make disciples of all nations. Even as those nations change, we still go to the nations, the people groups of the world, to make disciples, to make disciples here where we live locally. So think about your identity as you head into a new year, 2021. How are you building your life on the identity you have in Jesus Christ? And how are you letting your actions flow from that identity and making that priority? How, because it, what happens if you're, if you're building your life on some other identity, then, then that, that part of your life is going to ask you to sacrifice things to serve that false God. You know, if you, if you make your life all about LSU football, and you get the RV, and you go down to all the, the, uh, the uh, parking lot, what's it called, cookouts or whatever, um, camping out before the games, and you've got season tickets, and you go, you travel to all the away games, and you got the decorations and the fandom and the gear. You're spending tons of money. You're not showing up on your worship gatherings because LSU football is your life. 
You're going to have to sacrifice a lot of other things to feed this false god that is LSU football. And so you can examine your life. Like, where do you find your greatest joy, your greatest satisfaction? Where do you go to when life is hardest? Uh, We even can do things like take our family and turn our family into false idols that we worship. Our security, our safety, we can turn that into a false idol that we worship more than the identity that we have in Jesus Christ. And then think about power. The power to live your life. All the good things you want to see in your life in 2021. All the healthy things, the the habits that you want to have to be a, a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. The power of God lives inside of you to make that happen. Like think about the healthiest version of you in Jesus Christ. What does it look like? What is that person doing? How are you engaging in the word? How are you engaging in prayer? How are you loving your neighbors as yourself? How are you loving your enemies? How are you praying for the the gospel to go forward in the nations? How are you giving financially to see the gospel spread? How are you sharing the gospel with people who need to know Jesus? How are you uh, uh, feasting on the word? How are you uh, saying no to sin and saying yes to good things and holy things and righteous things? What is the best version of you doing all of those things? Guess what? That can actually become reality. Like that's reality. That can be a reality because you have the Spirit of God alive inside of you to make that happen. That's what, exactly what God wants to accomplish in your life. That's who God wants you to be. That's what He's created you for. And He who began a good work in you will complete it. He is working in you, sanctifying you to accomplish that because He's predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And so just dream big. What, how can I experience as much Jesus as possible in 2021? What would my life look like if Jesus truly is what captivated me and what I treasure more than anyone else? What would my life be like? And then go for it. Because the Spirit of God, the power of God, lives in you just like the Spirit of God lived in Jesus to accomplish that in your life. Don't hold back. Don't don't measure out your devotion to God. Well, you know, 2021, I really want to get these things done. i got to fix my house. i I got to do all these things. Don't, Don't measure out your devotion to God. Go all in. Give Him all that you are. And then let Him order your steps. Let Him order your time. Let His power fill you to accomplish the purpose and mission that He has for you in your life. And as a church, guys, as a church, the mission of the church doesn't change. So what is the identity of All's Chapel, the mission of All's Chapel, the purpose of All's Chapel? How can that be accomplished in 2021 with the power of God? Jesus is here to help All's Chapel accomplish His purpose and mission, to make disciples. How are you making disciples right now of the people who are part of All's Chapel? How is disciple-making happening right now? And then how do we make disciples of people who aren't a part of All's Chapel? Mainly people who aren't a part of any church. How do we make disciples of those people? The Spirit of God wants to answer those questions and help you accomplish that as the church of Jesus Christ right here, right now. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came to accomplish what only he could accomplish with the power of God, for the glory of God, so that our lives would be transformed, so that entire Uh, groups of people will be transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ and it continues 
We are here today gathered in this building to bear witness to that. We're lifting our song, our voices in song. We're lifting our voices in prayer, in scripture reading, in praise, because we are declaring Jesus has changed us. Jesus is changing us. And he wants to use us to continue to change more and more people. Thank you that you have given us this identity that can't be taken away or shaken. And thank you that your spirit lives inside of us so we have this power to do everything you've called us to do. So unite us with you in greater and greater ways so we can be obedient servants of King Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.